if you watch my channel, you know that one of the things I like to get into and um, basically explore is the origins of these gods. Where do these gods come from? Why do they have certain qualities about them? What's up with this divine frenzy thing that's happening? Why are they, why are they depicted as looking very beautiful and you know, having connections to the underworld or the sky or the waters? And is, it, is this something we can explore and come to conclusions on with etymology or rituals? studying the rituals and what does archaeology say about this stuff well my friend snappy who has an amazing channel called drawing down the stars i highly recommend this and she is all over this stuff she is all over it she is um resurrecting the old rites of the old gods and i love it and i'm i'm right behind it i stand behind that 100 i think it's amazing with that being said hit the intro Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true gnosis. Today, my guest is Snappy once again, drawing down the stars. Links in the description. Go and subscribe and hit that bell. I'm, I promise you, this is one of the best channels out there for exploring the ancient world and bringing comparative mythology in a new light that I've, that no one else on YouTube is doing. Like you're, and you have education in this field. You've been, you know, you've, um, you know, you've went through universities for the, and like, this is something that you do on your own time as well. Like you, you, this is like your passion. It's not just like, this is what you do. You live and breathe this stuff. So it's, yeah. it's a to you. that's why I love having you on. Yeah. So. Thank you so much for having me on uh, again, Neil. And, you know, thank you to your community for tuning in. And yeah, I think that I bring an interesting perspective to this kind of conversation, because like you said, I do have a background in academia. I have a degree in um, religion studies from the Carleton University here in Canada. And I also spent a year abroad studying at Pune University in Maharashtra, India. You know, and on top of that, I consider myself to be a practicing pagan. You know, I would describe myself as a witch. I, uh, I would describe my personal philosophy as sort of um, Gnostic animism. You know, and what I'm deeply interested in is is pursuing and locating and finding what I what I like to call the primordial pagan tradition or like that original natural nature religion that is at the heart of the human experience. Yeah. And so you recently you and I worked on a video together that you just released today. And it was um, it's about the Shavi Shaivism tradition. Is that how you say it? Yeah, Shaivite, Shaivite. Shaivite tradition or Shaiva. Right. These yeah. are the people who uh, follow um, Shiva as Shiva. the ultimate uh, divine figure. And there's connections, pretty obvious in my opinion, about Shiva and Dionysus. And so, what can what can you say about that? And and also, where what about this? Uh, where where did this text come from that you? Um, yeah. Told? Okay. So let's start with the text, and let's start with this uh, with this particular scholar. So um, the text that I got it from, sorry was uh, this book here. It's called Shiva and the Primordial Tradition. 
So this was written by a uh, French scholar named Alain Danelou. Now, Alain is a really interesting figure because he's one of the first Westerners who really went into India and in became immersed in the culture in the in the in the, in the, in the early turn of the century. So he arrives in India in 1932 with his partner Raymond Berrier, and they originally go there just for an adventure, but he winds up staying for over 20 years. He studies at the University of Benares in uh, Varanasi, and he also studies and learns Indian classical music and dance. And through his time there, he becomes initiated into the mystical Shaivite tradition, into that religion, and he takes that on. And also being a French historian, when he returns to Europe after these 20 years, he starts writing all these books on the history of Shaivism on the history of Indian religion, and then on connecting these primordial ideas and these traditions. So the big thing that I loved about Alain, what really drew me to his work was he was going back to these Bronze Age origins and was trying to, through a symbolic lens and through a ritual lens, and trying to find the deep connections. And what he identified as these natural primordial pagan traditions that seem to occur throughout the Bronze Age, you know, and they seem to be, he also describes how they constantly kind of revitalize themselves. So because these traditions are largely erotic based, they're based in the natural world and the earth. And because they're also um, usually using a lot of drugs and entheogens, there are periods of extreme persecution across history, but these natural, more feminine rites and religions persist, you know, and I believe like, and so does Daniel L. He, he does this all this comparison that Dionysus and Shiva are kind of the same figure. And what's really wild about this too is when you start to look into a lot of the roots of this tradition and how they converse with each other, the Indians and the Greeks kind of come to similar conclusions. Like there's almost like this war over the character of Shiva Dionysus, right? Where like the Indian texts claim Dionysus is theirs, claim his origin in Mount Kailash, claim that the Greeks are inserting their tradition upon them. Then later on, you have figures like Nonus, who write his grand epic, the Dionysica, right? Yeah. Where Dionysus goes to India to assert his authority, right? And the origins of their religion coming from Greece, right? So it's wild to me. That, that's such a good point. And you and I were looking at the, the Nonus text. And so the way that it would be connected would be through Phanes, the primordial deity Phanes that's, that, um, that, is written about by Hesiod. Um, so it's it's like um, Phanes is this primordial deity, both male and female. And, it's, um, and like you, when you look at these gods, they are always. I I, I don't know if you want to call it non non binary. Like you don't, they, they just look so beautiful and like they look so young and and uh, full of life that it's almost like they i guess you'd say effeminate would be one word like there's dionysus he's got the uh animal skins on and and it's like there's that idea that well you look at when you look at shiva's as well you have is shiva has sort of a similar appearance in that sense um you also there's also the very common connection between osiris and dionysus that plutarch talks about diodorus talks about herodotus talks about i mean this was Everybody pretty much agreed that Dionysus and Osiris were the same god. Well, Dionysus has that blue appearance, like Shiva. I'm sorry, Osiris. I mean, so yeah. like you have the the similarities. The, them wearing animal skins, they're they're very beautiful. 
they have blue appearance like there's it's it's almost in the way that the depicted that i would go first the depictions of them are very similar the thing the other thing is how do, where do we get the name from um and i i have a theory that i want to throw out at you and you and i discussed this and i looked I, I was looking for anyone who any like scholars that wrote about this but as far as i know i haven't found it yet but there's something that i think is there just hear me out on this when you go to sabat so sabatios right sabatios is this god this ancient phrygian thracian god very ancient it's basically like a, a it's like if you were to take hades saturn and dionysus and roll them all into one god the god of time the god of the underworld and the god of frenzies right this is kind of what sabatios is so he's this thracian god of the phrygians i'm showing my screen this is uh encyclopedia.com and uh so when you look at the etymology of his name, for, first of all, I just want to show people the identification of Sabatios and Dionysus occurs regularly in Hellenistic sources is unquestionable. So right off the bat, it's like, all right, we got this god. It's basically Dionysus. His name's Sabatios. He's very ancient. Goes back to the Bronze Age. But his name, this is what this is what this is what really I knew I had to bring this up. If you look at his name in, in Proto-Indo-European Reconstruction, it's Suwa. Suwa. And, and like, this is the part where I'm jumping into uncharted territories. It, can, can, you, can we make a case that there's a Shiva connection right there in the etymology? Now, that would be something. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Like I, I think... You know what? I would be far more surprised if there wasn't if there wasn't this direct connection, because honestly, like um, scholars, mystics, philosophers across history, both European and Indian are making these connections. OK, and they're connecting these kind of figures. Right. Right. Like a lot of people will make accusations of things like bread or conflating myths. But at the same time, I'm trying to remind everyone that people are far more connected in these ancient primordial pasts. We're far more like. There's this wild variation within paganism, but that's sort of the point, you know? So there's always going to be these differences, but they're connecting to these same primordial energies, the magna mater, the divine feminine, right? And the divine phallus. And that is at the heart of these ancient Bronze Age religions, whether it's Shiva, Dionysus, who, or what have you, you know? And when we're looking back to, like, a lot of people want to, pro, uh, want to go to the Indo-Aryans, right? But this even predates far predates the Indo-Aryans. We're seeing this in the roots of the earliest civilizations within India, in Harappa, right? We're seeing this in uh, Mohenjo-daro. We're seeing similar elements occur across this area. So if we go to Turkey, if we look at Gobekli Tepe, at all of these various sites, we're seeing the same kinds of imagery. We have these primordial snake mothers. We have these divine yogic figures with these wild frenzied hair and horns. Okay, who are usually sitting in a stylized type of yogic pose, right? We have the the same kind of drugs. The, normally, it is marijuana and it is psilocybin mushrooms. Everywhere these people go, That's you have this, this. You know, this is what we're gonna end up. We're gonna get. We're gonna end up getting into the whole Kaikian Soma thing that the connection because I already know how we're gonna get there. But uh, there's a passage from Clement of Alexandria in his Exhortation of the Greeks where he says that the most impressive rite of initiation into the mysteries of Sabatios consisted of the adept's contact with a snake that was first put over his breast 
and then pulled down to his genitals. Now, I know you you hear that, and there's Shiva written all over that. Yeah. Is there anything, anything related, anything close to that in the rites of Shiva with, with the serpent and the phallus? Well, you normally will see that one of the most primordial symbols of Shiva is the lingam, right? Which is the divine phallus that's sitting in the base of the yoni, which is the primordial vulva vagina, you know, and these are united into the force of creation, right? And then coming up around the phallus is always the snake. The snake is representative of that power, that feminine energy of creation, what we call Shakti, right? Or the, the time itself, right? So when you see the lingam, the lingam, the phallus, represents timelessness. It's that primordial force, that purusha, that cosmic uh, man. And then you have that shakti, that feminine empowering force that comes around it. You know, and together they create the lingam, right? When the lingam is not just a phallus, it's the phallus united with the vulva, right? And it's this divine force of creation. You know, and that's what these people are worshiping is the highest, most divine form. Can you... Can you talk about the relationship between Fainis and Shiva? Yeah, so within within the within the, the Indian tradition, specifically within Shaivism, right? We're, we're we're talking about there's this idea of Purusha and Prakriti. Okay, so it's like you have this idea of Purusha who is like the cosmic man. So I have a text here. If we look here, this is the cosmic man Purusha here on the front. And within Shaivism, this is identified with Shiva himself directly. And at the beginning of the myths, at the beginning of creation, what happens is the cosmic egg, the Hiranagarbha, gives birth to Purusha, to the cosmic person, right? And then he is sacrificed by the power of Shakti, right? Which is this female erotic energy, Eros, rips Purusha apart to create the universe. Okay, that is just, and the reason why I wanted to ask you that, not, 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 not only because it's so cool, I just love talking about it. But if we go to Nonus, Nonus was such a brilliant, well-educated writer. Like he's the new Homer of the, what is it, fifth century common era? But he writes about this feigny. So you just mentioned, now you just laid it out. It's pretty clear that Shiva has this primordial being concept. He's also connected with time, like kind of like Saturn, but like in a way more primordial way than Saturn. Because Saturn comes later. Saturn's not the first god that comes out. It's Phanes. So, okay, let's let's look at this for a second. Now, I don't know if you can see this. Let me make my screen. Let me zoom in a little more. So we have with, with Nonus, where he talks about uh, Helios raised a finger and pointed out his circling daughter, Hora of Autumn, close to a wall opposite his separated tablets of Harmonia. Um, I'm going to go down a little bit more to the passage about... Here it is. But when the harvest home maiden, now that right there, that we always had this maiden marriage happening in all these myths is just a reoccurring thing. It has to do with like the spring and the fall. Anyways, had seen all these prophecies. She sought the place where hard by on the neighboring wall was engraved the figure of Ganymedes pouring the nectar juice into a golden cup. So we have this. This is another motif you see all over the place. This is this nectar of the gods putting into a cup this ritual, right? There was an oracle engraved in four lines. There a grape loving goddess reveled for she found this prophecy kept for Laius, Ivy bearer, Dionysus, Zeus gave Phobos, Apollon, 
the prophetic laurel. Now, I love this passage. Red roses to Aphrodite, the gray leaf olive to Athena, corn to Demeter. There's the, and then the last two are the most important ones. You have your grain and you have your vine. That's like the Eucharist, right? You have your bread and your wine, the blood and the right, right there. So you, those are the most important two right there. Demeter and Dionysus. And this is what the Ewan Maiden saw on the tablets. There's that Bacchic cry, right? But this is where, and I just wanted to set it up because this is where he gets into hate, uh, Thanes. She, Hera, would have destroyed the son of Dionysus, still a baby, in the care of Eno. This is central to the mysteries. But Hermes caught him up and, caught, and carried him to the wooded ridge where Kybele dwelt. Moving fast, Hera ran swift shoe on her feet, quick from the high heaven. But he was before her and assumed the eternal shape of firstborn Thanes. What? So wait. Dionysus is Phanes? What? Anyone who, for, anyone, first time I saw this, I go, wait a minute. How does that make any sense? We have the succession. Phanes comes, comes out of the monad, right? Phanes gives, uh, I don't know, creates or gives birth to Eros and Nyx. And then Eros and Nyx sort of bring us Aranos and Gaia. Aranos and Gaia give us Saturn. Saturn gives us Jupiter. Jupiter gives us Bacchus. But then it says he's, Assume the eternal shape of the firstborn Phanes in this passage. This is right after he's born. Let's keep going. Hera, in respect for the most ancient of the gods, gave him place and bowed before the radiance of the deceiving face, not knowing the borrowed shape for a fraud. So Hermes passed over the mountain track with quicker step than hers, carrying the horned child. I love that. I love that. This is the Satyr Dionysus, the Chthonian underworld. This is the devil, guys. This is the devil. This is the Christian devil. Watch my video on this. You'll understand what I mean by that. I love it. This is the greatest thing. Paganism, and this, this relates to the book that you that you did a video about, because the author said that pagan everything that is evil is just paganism for the Christians. Anyways, the horned child folded in his arms and gave it to Rhea. He put off the higher shape of the self-born Phanes and put his own form again, leaving Bacchus, Dionysus, to grow a second time in mother's nurture. So there we have it that Bacchus and Phanes had this connection. It's like Bacchus is the chosen one. He's the chosen savior child. And you know what? What I see with all this is like we have to approach this from these mystery traditions and from this idea of of, of enlightenment, okay? Both the Shaivite traditions and the Dionysian Orphic traditions are focused on this idea of gaining Ionic life, about living in the moment, okay, about this dying and rebirth ritual. That is at the heart of all of the mysteries of these cults. And when you understand that, everything starts to make sense. Both Dionysus and Shiva are gods of destruction, right? They're gods of separation. At the center of their rites are these destructive rituals, right? Both of them are fannies, or you have Purusha. They are sacrificed and ripped apart. Within Dionysian ideas, this is the sparagmos, that destructive force. Within Shiva, they talk about this is the force that destroys and kills the ego. What unites these two figures is, think about it, they represent the image of the monadic deity in the physical universe. Even though it is separated, they're that reformatted deity. They represent the spark the of power of the of the individual to be able to realize our true nature, to reassemble ourselves back into the cosmic person and return 
to the Orphic egg, to return back to that golden egg. This is what we're trying to do. And that's what these mysteries are all about. And that's, to me, the strongest thing that connects them is that both of these rites are about this monadic experience, about this understanding of the separation and the unity through ritualized sacrifice and destruction and through entheogens, you know? Yeah. And there, I think then the, this is the next thing we have to cover. So we have a possible etymology thing with this, with this Shiva, Siwa, whatever that is with, with Sabatios. I have to go and find out about that and ask some ling, ling, linguistic experts on, is this a possible connection? Okay, let's hold that. Let's hold that first thought. But then we have this idea that they're both Phanes is Phanes has is this primordial deity. Um, that is the first. It's like the like you said, primordial deity. But they're both connected to this god somehow, and in, in in very obvious ways. So you have appearances. You have the way their the traditions are placed placing them, and then you have this idea of the frenzy. Um, actually, this is perfect for, there was a super chat that I saw. Let me find it real quick. And this is perfect. This is a great question. What about Odin? So, so this, this is kind of, this, this is, is wonderful. Where we're going to go deep, right? Cause yeah, Odin, so... I actually pulled up before we went, this is such a good question that I, you and I already had this planned. Mm-hmm. Um, here's Odin's etymology. The etymology of Odin, violently insane. Well, I guess that's now obsolete frenzied though that's that's more important anyway mad frenzied so i don't know apparently people used to think it meant violent insane but now it's means uh mad frenzied wotan or wodans wodanas or something like you know the wodanas um and it's also connected to veda the vedas um so here you go we have a connection here the frenzy god the god of the frenzy well, we don't have to say sh- anything about Bacchus in this sense. There's clearly Bacchus is the god of the frenzy. He enters your when you drink wine. Bacchus is the one who possesses you, and he's the one who puts you in that state. The frenzy, and he's and the Kaikion is supposed to be the mixture of Demeter and Bacchus, where you you drink this wine that's that has this ergot in it, this fermented ergot, this grain that's gone bad. And you drink this stuff, and it's the kaikion, and it puts you in the frenzied state. But also on the on the Vedic side, you have the soma. What are your thoughts on right. that? Yeah, but I mean, even like these shaiva traditions, they even predate the soma, right? Like, and they have these sexual drug rites that are at the heart of these religions, where they're trying to realize and become possessed in a frenzy by the deity, right? Like we have numerous, numerous examples of of gurus and saints across these Indian traditions who become possessed by the figures of Kali or become possessed by Shiva. They take on what's called a bow or a mood. And often they'll throw themselves in the streets. They'll engage in ecstatic song and dance. Sometimes they'll prophesy. And, 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 you know, like the, the parallels are just are are too intense, and we're, 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 what's with Woden, where it gets really interesting, is like um, there's another philosopher who's really interested in this primordial kind of pagan tradition that I really like, named um, whose name is uh, Ludwig Klages, and I have him here, and he talks a lot about that Odin figure, and he connects Odin 
to this Saturnine Dionysian figure, right? Which we can also relate to Shiva. And when we look at them, right, they're this Shiva and, and uh, Odin, they both fulfill this role of these gods of knowledge, these gods of the poetic voice, right? They're also these ones who reveal the mystery, right? And they undergo these transformations in order to gain access to the mystery. And this is another one I wanted to bring up because we have this myth, right, of Odin who sacrifices himself and becomes androgynous in order to learn the magic from Freya, right? He has to be effeminized himself in order to do that. You know, we have this idea where he, in order to gain knowledge, has to hang himself from the tree of knowledge, you know? And with Shiva, we have this whole thing where in order to gain the Amrit, okay, which is the nectar of life, which is the Soma, you know, in order to gain immortality and have this nectar, uh, Shiva is forced to drink the poison of the world snake Vasuki. And then with the help of his wife, consort, Parvati, he transmutes the poison into in something powerful and he adds it to the final Soma solution. He adds this snake venom from his body that's brought forth from his body by Parvati. You know, and this snake venom turns him blue. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. That's so amazing. Um, by the way, thank you, Usual, for the super sticker. I appreciate that. This is like, so what I think we're, I think what's happening. Again, this is all just my opinion, but what I think, what I think is happening here is there is a ancient tradition that predates writing going back before people were even writing anything. And there's this God, this uh, this ancient rites. The Phrygians talk about how Sabatios and Kybli are the oldest gods that nobody even knows how old they are. Plutarch talks about this. Plutarch writes about Sabatios and says that the Jews, the Yahweh is like a version of Set. And then he says that they worship Dionysus and that the day of the Sabbath is a festival of Sabatios. He writes that in the Symposiacs. So and why am I mentioning all this? Because I think there's uh I think this is like the primordial, most important central God that um and like his traits sort of splinter out into all these traditions over time. And that's why you it's like you see, like it's almost like you see little fractions of them in all these other in all these myths and traditions. And like, we could take all these fractions of it and put it together. And you have this, this, whatever this is, this bronze age deity that was central to a, an ancient culture that you can like, it's like, it's kind of cool. Cause it's like, you're resurrecting it a little bit. Exactly. In my mind, like when we think about this thing too, right. And we understand these pagan conceptions, like this is a deity that exists as one in many, right. So that is, it is by gendered, Mo and in monogendered, right? So when I think about things like we have these, we have Shiva and Shakti, and then you have Adranari Ishvara, right? We have Aphrodite and Kronos, and then we have Dionysus in the middle, or Fani's in the middle. You know, we get these elements of these figures, right? It's not always lines up directly, but there's this understanding of this father, phallus, divine figure that's representative of this light, of this transformative creative force. And then you have the feminine figure of the divine cave that gives birth to the universe. That is the cosmic darkness. It is the portal, right? It is the thing that protects us, that nurtures us and gives 
birth to us. And it is together when you unite these two forces, right? Like it's so intrinsic, the black and the white, the sun and the moon, you know? You see it representative everywhere, male, female. It's, it's, it's the primordial natural religion of humanity. This is a good question right here. And this is actually, thank you, Time Traveler. With the, He's got the Kronos uh, thumbnail going. How does Father Tom relate to any of this? So I think we should start with, with Shiva, right? Yeah, well, Shiva is considered the primordial timelessness, right? He's... He, okay, so the, the closest equivalent, if we were going to think in Orphic terms, would be something like the ion, okay? It's that, or, you know, Kronos in its, his original form as that force of separation that causes time to come into motion, you know? And this is from a Shaivite cosmology. The interest, with Hinduism, you have many different interpretations of all these things, right? So specifically within the Shaivite mode, Shiva is this is this timeless force, right? He is the phallus. Yeah, I'm looking, at, I'm looking at a thing that says that Kala is the fiery avatar of Shiva. And that's time. That means time. Kala means time. Yeah. So that is like, exactly. a, that's like a Saturnian motif with Saturn. And um, then you, so now let's go, let's, how does this connect to Dionysus? Well, I'll tell you, this is, I think this is pretty obvious. Saturn's day. The Sabbath is on it's Saturn's day. There's no, there's no question about there's a relation, obviously. Everyone in the ancients, Plutarch talks about this all the time. You know, the Sabbath is the day of Salatio, sir, sir, which is like a, a version of Saturn that's probably a little older, more Phrygian version of Saturn, maybe, to be more exactly. Because Saturn is so diverse. The Romans have a version of Saturn. You know, in Athens, they might have their own depiction of Saturn. And you got to remember, this, this, this all gets put together after the Roman imperial cult puts it all together in Latin. But before that, you have different traditions. So the Phrygians have Sabatios, who's sort of a Saturn time god, so father god type figure. And um, his, his same, you have the same castration, his son castrating himself in honor of, like, you have all this like weird commonality happening. What does that I think what we're seeing, like we have to remember, right? Like we're dealing with these really ancient traditions, okay? Of yeah. which the originators, that culture that produced it has been lost to us. And we're not seeing their, they were non-literate, right? So these are people who created and lived in images. So when we do receive their myths, it's from a later culture that's interpreting them. So yeah, in my mind, when I look at a figure like, like Saturn Kronos, they're representative of that primordial nature religion that was displaced by the later Indo-Aryans who come in with their sun cult and their horse cult, you know, that is displacing it. So Saturn becomes this castrated figure. He right. becomes well, the king who's dethroned and tossed aside, you know? That was my, that was what I was trying to say is like, we have to read between the lines and sort of, um, pull out things that aren't exactly being said, but like you can sort of uh, find it through comparing this stuff because what we're looking at, the, the sources that we have, like Plutarch or Diodorus of Sicily, those are the uh, to, they're probably the best two in my opinion. You have Ovid in Latin, you have you know, you have later writers as well but like the reason, and those people, these people are putting together these people are post-euhemorization so you have this euhemorization uh fad that happens in the fourth century third century bce that's the same time the septuagint gets written apparently there's a text by sanko in the eighth and from the bronze age that gets passed down which it probably didn't get, it's probably completely 
interpolated. It's euhemerized, all that stuff. But like you can, that's another text. You can go through that text and you can like try to read between the lines and like what's being said, what's being passed down. What's what's, what can we tell is euhemerized? What can we tell that's actually like there? And what I'm getting at is the gods that we have in the sources are a lot more personified, a lot, lot less of the rituals we're seeing. We're seeing more of like the stories. And that's what the Romans are doing. It's a story. And that's what we have. We have Roman sources, basically. Greek and Roman yeah. sources. You know, it's it's interesting because, right, like we're, we're trying to piece together and we're trying to understand and interpret these myths, right? And like there's this understanding, especially within the Shaivite tradition, okay? Like you have these characters or you have these people who call themselves like they're the Rasas, they're the Indian esthetes, they're the people who taste and understand the myths and they draw out all of this extended meaning, right? They they use it something called Devani or extended metaphor in order to perceive the myths on many, many, many multiple meanings to include all meanings and, 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 and not dissuade none. Like you got to remember these myths in the Indian context and in the Shaivite context are living beings. They're living spirits that are that are bringing on this energy and they're, they're they're transmitting it across time. So this is something you can engage with, you know, and like it's a living tradition that it constantly revives itself because of this erotic full-bodied nature that's based in, in 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 theogens and in sex and in imagination you know yeah um you know homer the thing about homer and hesiod too is that when you homer's not writing a new story that he just thought of and like brainstormed homer's like a and i i always use the term internet to describe him. someone else to uh, a friend of mine actually pointed this out to me and I, and I stole it ever since but um it's like homer is looking around at all these ancient myths and he's putting them into one story so you already have there already is um some changing of like they're not these these stories were once separate like the traditions of the of the phrygians are not the same as the traditions of the greeks or the athenians i should say but like Homer takes all this stuff and puts it all into one store, the Iliad. And he's like, hey, remember those Cretans? Yeah, they had 90 cities and the Pelasgians lived there. And like what he's doing is Homer is giving like stories that are um, that are injected with like. Uh, what's the yeah I mean we got to understand Homer is a bard and a folklorist let me finish this thought real quick you know injecting the story with like geography and like other things that are like he's like giving you all the information he has and he's putting into a story for a song that people can sing at, at that's what that was the whole point of Homer and Hesiod these are bards like you said and you're supposed to sing these and you remember them but like Everything Homer is saying is they're all splintered from other places. He's not just like this isn't just like an, a myth from his one location. They're from all over the place. Does that make sense? Or did I, I'm trying to say? Oh that. no, of course. This is what I was trying to say is that he's this folklorist, right? right? He's going around and asking people, okay, so tell me the stories of the gods and your ancestors. Yeah, you know, and then he's collecting them and he's and he's interpreting them through his cultural lens because he understands the purpose. Right. These these stories convey deep, profound meaning. Right. Like the understanding of these traditions is like all kinds of meaning can be conveyed. You I'll know, give you, I'll give you an example. He, Homer. I just thought of one. This is perfect. Homer randomly in the middle of one of his stories just goes off and says, oh, by the way, uh, Yasion, 
once laid with Demeter on the island of Crete, where he was shot down by a thunderbolt from Zeus. And then he just goes on and then back to the story again. He randomly just detours from the story to tell you about some random story and then goes on. But well, like, but what scholars have found out about that is that that, that was a tr- an entire tradition from the Cretan mythology about this god Yasios, Yasion, who's a healer god who every year sp- lays with Demeter in the spring. And then after they're done laying, it's fall time, he gets killed. And then you have winter. So there's this agricultural myth of this, this god who lays with Demeter. And then you're like, De- why is Demeter? Why is Demeter so central to all this stuff? It's always Demeter and Bacchus. or, And I'm thinking because of the times, the agricultural, sw- the, the, the movement towards agricultural living, Demeter becomes central. She becomes the, the god of the grain, of the seeds. So, there, so it's like you're seeing you're, what you're getting in these myths is like, I don't want to say scientific shit, but like it's, the, they're, that's, it's what they're trying to get at. You can tell they're trying to be scientific in a weird way. Yeah, they're trying to convey what's important to them, right? The, the the primordial understanding of their time in every sense of the word. These aren't just moral stories. They aren't right. just cosmological stories. They aren't just medicinal. They're, they're every kind of story. They have to convey the totality of their information in a way that anyone who listens to them can extract what is needed from them, right? You've got to remember, these are non-literate people. These are people whose entire lives are based around these magical formulas, around these songs that they're constantly singing to themselves to remember what to do, right? Every profession is going to have their own magical approach, their own magic that they use in order to memorize, in order to work and to do this. And these myths are no different. They need to contain the entirety of the essence of the culture of these people. you right. Yeah, that made a lot of sense. That's You said it a lot better than I was. That's exactly what I was trying to say. And thank you for saying it that way. That made a lot of sense. Could the male and female energies be referring to the solar and lunar germs and the joining of them when cultivating the sacred sacred secretion, what the Essene traditions tried to produce kundalini energy? Yeah, so kundalini energy is this idea in, um, like I was talking to you about this idea of shakti, the primordial snake, right? That energy of time, right? That active force, that erotic force that's in the world. That's also Kundalini. Shakti and Kundalini are one and the same. Kundalini is the force that exists within inside ourselves. Through yogic practice and through austerities, we're able to cultivate this force. And we're able to have the Kundalini snake rise. It is coiled around the base of our spine, right, at the bottom. And through focus and dedication and austerity, we can make the snake rise up our back and come into our head. And then we can have the venom of the snake drip onto our pineal glands, right? This is like this whole creation of this of this drug, this tasting, this omrit thing. It's wild. Yeah. But I definitely think like there's something there, like there's all of these sexual metaphors, right? Like, of course, right? The male and the female, the procreative power is there and it is implied in the myth, but they're not just that, right? There's so much more than just that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that. Um... And the reason why I'm looking around is because the next question was about, doesn't the Upanishads have a text about, I'm I'm assuming, God dying for three days? Um, I was just trying to find, it's not about a God, you should know, I think you know about this. I don't Mm. think it's God dying for three days, I think it's a God going to the underworld for three days. Yeah, it's going to the underworld, right? Like, this is a constant motif we see. Constant motif, you see that with Inanna and and, and Tammuz, 
by the way, Tammuz is sort of related in this to all this stuff too. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, so I mean, we have many different stories about people like like the, the god of the underworld is Yama, right? And so and you also you have to go and you have to argue with it's very similar to the to the figure of Pluto in Hades, right? We have a lot of the similar kind of conceptions. Um, but yeah. This, yeah. this, this idea of you having to die and be resurrected, you know, is very, so you have the goddess as Sati, right? This is our Demeter figure. And she throws herself on her father's funeral pyre, okay? And she goes in, to the underworld. But in the underworld, it's understood that there's a promise that she will be reborn again to become Shiva's consort. And then later on, what happens is, is that uh, she goes into the womb of the, of the wife of the god of the mountain. And then is born again as Parvati. And then Parvati has to go into the wilderness. And she, through austerities and through yoga, is able to convince Shiva himself to come out of his slumber and marry her. And that's like one of the most important myths of the tradition, the marriage of Shiva and Parvati. Yeah. Um, and it's and what's interesting about the Isa text that I'm looking at. Let me see if I can share my screen. Oh yeah, the Isha Upanishad. I don't remember this one right offhand. Yeah. So yeah, share this, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. so much in these traditions, you know. Yeah, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to find the whole three, the whole like going down to the underworld. Uh, like it says, it does. Okay, so this is what it says. It is he who pervades all. He who is bright and bodiless. Like it almost sounds like Fanny's already right, without scar or sinews, pure and pure and by evil unpierced. Um, seer, omniscient transcendent uncreated yet fanies he has dual dually allotted the war the eternal world creators their respective duties it's fanies i'm not saying that this is actually fanies, but i'm just it's a lot like fanies you know what i mean um mm -hmm. where is that yeah there's a, i'm gonna look into that but um there yeah i'm pretty sure somewhere in this text somewhere there's this idea that this god travels down to the under underworld and um goes down there for three days and then comes back up and then brings the springtime life. So it's like, it's, and it's not that it shouldn't be that surprising for people who've seen this idea um, all over the place, you know, with Inanna, Inanna travels down to the underworld and her husband and brother or lover or whatever, which is like kind of like Persephone and Bacchus. They had that same, are they brothers? Are they married? What is it? What's going on here? Anyways. So the same shit. Oh, Osiris and Isis. Are they brother? They're brother and sister. They're also married. What's going on? So there you have that's connection there. That's a weird connection. But they also have this idea of agricultural resurrection. That the, mm -hmm. the god dies. Dionysus or Osiris gets killed. Isis has to go save him. Or Ishtar or Inanna goes down in the underworld. She goes down, goes through all the layers, takes all her clothes off. She gets pinned up on a, on a log or a, a wooden beam. And then somehow gets out of it and then when she brings up tamus out of the underworld the dead are raised with her so like admit that beg and right away you're thinking like a lot of that sounds christian and like of course it does like why wouldn't the christians be borrowing from the most ancient and sacred motifs that exist of course right of course they are of course they're exactly. gonna apply that to jesus and they, you know when jesus was crucified he's the one that went down into heaven and then he's the one that came up and bring bring back the dead. So it's also something that we see. Okay, like this is something when pri like 
prior to Christianity, right, when Rome is going around and they're attacking everyone, when the Gre Greek Empire is going around attacking everyone, what do they do when they displace these religions? They conflate them into their own. They say, your God, you know, it's not your God. Your God is Jupiter. Your God is Mars. Your rights, we'll let you maintain them. But you got to swear fealty to us and you got to give us 90% of your temple donations. But this was what happened. It's like there was this general understanding that all of these myths are the same, yeah. right? That there's this general confluence. There's this understanding. These forces interact with us all universally. And even though they take on different cultural shades, that's what they are, shades, you know? And they worried more about the rituals than they did about, like, historicity or myth mythology or theology like they weren't the, the theology stuff was like that was duked out by the philosophers well when you look at the primordial pagan traditions okay they have nothing to do with morality it's not about what you think okay it's not about belief faith and belief are not concepts that that factor into the ancient religions Re ancient religions were about what you did what right. rights you did did you wake up at dawn and go and say your prayers did you go on a specific day and make a sacrifice that's what made you a pagan. You know, they didn't care what who you had sex with. They didn't care what you actually thought. They cared what you was did. That, it was that power? <laughs> it was that power feeling, or that friend, that divine frenzy, like Plato writes about. It's that exactly. that mindset that these rites sort of kind of. It was all about connecting us to the to the primordial essence of their natural reality. These were myths and stories and beings that come from the earth, right? That are related to this. When we look at these cycles, right? Like we were talking earlier about the Kronos myth, but it's important that we understand that that is one cycle in a series of cycles. Before Kronos is castrated by Zeus, Kronos castrates Uranus, Uranus. right? Because Uranus is a tyrant. The understanding in all of this is that these forces who take that masculine scepter, right? It's always described as the scepter. They hold this phallus. They have that nature of power. And for a while, they're good. Kronos rules over the golden age, right? right. But eventually he becomes corrupted. Do, he you becomes know what I'm wondering? Spirit. I'm wondering if, because Hesiod brings us one of the oldest theogonies that we have. And there's this idea of this succession of sky fathers. And you have Gaia and Aranos. And they say Aranos starts up this kingdom in the sky. And then he is replaced by Saturn. And then Saturn is replaced by Jupiter. But like, it makes me wonder when, when Hesiod is putting this stuff down, is he relating actual replacements by, like, for, I'll give you an example. Let's say, and then let's say the, the Assyrians invaded the Lydians in Turkey and they conquered them. And then they replaced their guy with a new god. Is this what Hesiod is getting at, or is it something else? Is it some agricultural thing? Like, is it? Are there other really gods being replaced by other gods in a literal sense? As in, like, these rights used to be here, but now we have new rights, and it's a new god here because the new people conquered us. Now it's the Persians. The Persians. Okay, now we have Jupiter. I'm just, I'm I think like, honestly, I'm hypothetical as hell right now. But like, do you, do you understand what I'm like? No, for sure. And I would imagine, like, okay, if we're understanding these myths as containing all of these kind of stories, both philosophical and literal, then probably, probably. And when we look at the way that a lot of these, what would they do? They go in and they sack the temple, they smash the idols of the previous gods, and they install their idols, right? So this is a literal installation. But That's what what I always, so, so it very well, I think though, even though it's happening 
in a literal sense or potentially happening in a literal sense, it does not preclude nor negate the metaphysical sense of this transition force, of this understanding that power corrupts and that power eventually needs to be replaced, right? It calcifies, right? This, we understand this when we look at things from a natural perspective. Like these ancients didn't understand evolution, but yet in a sense, they kind of do. They understand the changing of the crops. They understand the cultivation of fruit. And there's reason why they use this language with Demeter, right? Like you're cultivating and you're ever perfecting, right? Saturn is a gardener, right? When he cuts us, each time he doesn't destroy the plant, but he eats the fruit. The plant regrows and makes juicier fruit, you know? So each cycle, it's getting better. Things are transitioning. Things are becoming, you know, the, we're entering this cycle where in the beginning, the one was alone and it needed to know itself. It needed to. And so out of desperation, it rips itself apart to create the other. Yeah. And then there's that separating time. But right. eventually that separation becomes so painful. It causes so much suffering. It's unbearable. Uh, you know, so in order to know each other, we have to break apart. But through breaking apart, there's that separation. That separation leads to suffering. So then we have to bring it back. And now we have these rites in this religion, in this ritual, in this evolution. Our society is constantly evolving to a point where we're going to return or we want to return back to that primordial one. But even when we get there, the game is going to repeat because that is the problem. When you become one, you cannot know. You cannot experience the other. You cannot be fulfilled in the pleasure of another. Right. But to be separated is to not know the other. You can never possess them fully. You can never really share them. You can only do so for a moment, which is why the ion is so important. It's that moment of the union. It's that moment of death. You know, it's that moment of orgasm. You know what? Ovid, Ovid talks about this, but also Aeschylus' Prometheus is, touches on this metamorphosis concept. And this, you have this Greek proverb, know thyself, right? And the concept of the, 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 the common thread throughout Ovid's metamorphosis is the the metamorphosis of like the the symbol of the caterpillar becoming the butterfly to becoming becoming that self i guess that would they would say that what that means is like each of these characters in a way go through some sort of trial tribulation and they come out of it usually the gods interfere and like turn them into something or and here's another example uh gold the metamorphosis of apuleius where he's uh turning into a donkey and uh he wants to be saved. And he goes to Isis and he gets initiated into Isis and she saves him. She's the salvation. But on the flip side, you also have, it's not always good. It's not always positive. Sometimes there's a bad metamorphosis where you have King Midas gets the golden touch, right? And he's going around. He's got golden touch. He could turn anything. But then he can't even eat a banana or whatever it is. I think it's an apple or banana. He can't even eat a banana because it turns into gold. He, he wants out. He's like, I'm way over and over my head. I think he goes to, um, I think he goes to Bacchus, actually. Either Bacchus or Apollo. And he's like, I want out. I want to get saved. And the god tells him, I think it's Bacchus, but it could be Apollo. It's one of those two. He says, go down to the river Hybros and dip yourself in there. And then come back and you'll be, you know, you'll you'll be healed. So he does, he goes and does this thing, right? And he gets healed by, by his golden hands. But as he's walking back, he notices Pan and Apollo are playing their, uh, they're having a, 
competition on is it the it's some instrument i can't remember what it was probably the kathara or is it the yeah. olos it's it's one of the it's one of the it's maybe it's the flute or something and it's something it's probably oh, the no. yeah the kathara yeah, like violin thing so they're having a competition and because usually apollo plays a lyre and pan plays the flute but in this case they're both having a competition for another instrument they're, they're both they're both going out of their main thing and having a competition he walks up to them and they're like hey why don't you judge this competition and then he um he picks Apollo to win, but everybody was like, "No, Pan was way better." Even Apollo was like, "Yeah, dude, Pan was way better. You suck. You're a bad judge. You have golden e- or you have donkey ears now. You can't hear music for shit. You have bad hearing. You don't have ears to hear. Get it? There's that motif, right? You have ears to hear. So what happens is, uh, King Midas gets gets flappy ass ears because. He just, bro, you don't have ears to hear. You're a lame. That's your fate now. So, so, so he forever is remembered as the, the the ass ears king with the golden touch guy. He has. It's more important than that because memory. when you look deeply at this myth, right? Midas, why does Midas fail? He fails in his transformation because of greed. Exactly. Right? You know, greed holds that. him back. He doesn't have that gnosis, right? He no. He's not, it hasn't clicked yet. Right. This is a constant thing. When you look at the Greek tragedies, you always see these figures who are engaged because the tragedies come out of the cult of Dionysus. Right. They come out of the Dionysian mysteries. They were originally performed during the the ceremonies. Right. So they're always about these people who are engaging with the rites and with the mysteries, but then who fundamentally fail. Right. Who are unable to realize them for some reason or another. You know, like Jason, to me, is the quintessential one. Why does Jason fail? Because he fails to to, to invest in his love of Medea. He doesn't trust her. He abandons her. As soon as things get tough and rocky, he throws her the F away because he's focused upon his own dream of the kingdom. But meanwhile, Medea was manifesting everything for him. She brought him the fleece. She brought him home safely. She gave him children. She would have gave him the kingdom. But he spurned her. And for that, everything he created Everything he was was destroyed, and he died in seclusion, alone and forgotten, with no one to call, to remember his name. You, 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 that's an important thing. This is what it all comes down to. It's about like your your immortality or your damnation depends on what you do in your life. Exactly. It's not about like oh, I, I was a Christian, so I was the good guy. Like that's, that's not how the ancients thought of things. It's not about like who you align no. with or what, what myth you think is correct. No, no, no. It's about like who you are, how you treat your family, how you treat your loved ones, how, how what do you do around you? What are you doing? Do you really get it? Do you have ears to hear, right? So those, are, those are all most, but like, this is, this is the thing that Christians try to flip on its head because in the ancient world, you have people who are immortalized are the heroes of old. You know, Achilles is immortalized. He's a hero. He's great. All these great people are heroes. All these Queens and Great queens and great characters are all heroes. And all the bad ones are always like, oh, yeah, he had ass ears and he's going to be in Hades forever. Ixion's wheel, that stuff. That's all. It's it's metaphor for saying, like, your legacy, depending on how people view you in the, in the future, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, the people are going to talk about you in a certain light. That's your damnation or that could be your immortality key. So you you, you can be immortalized by being such a great person. By the people in the future, or you could be damned for being like Hitler's damned forever. Hitler has the worst, you know what I mean? Like, so there's this idea of if you're immortal, it's because people are you immortalize yourself by doing by being that 
good person by attaining that apotheosis. Yes. There's a layer there. No, and, for sure. And, here, and here's and let me, this is I want to hear your thoughts on this. I really I love this. I've I've been thinking about this lately. The Christians are sort of flipping this on its head and they make it about if you're aligned with the church, you have salvation. If you're love, oh, if you need to pay, if you pay us money, we'll get your loved ones who were pagans out of hell for you. Like your pagans were your your loved ones are pagans and you want to save them. All right, give us your money and we'll. So it becomes this like business thing where the only people who are saved in, in this tradition are the ones that are aligned with us. But like, there's this idea in the pagan world of divine providence, and here's the. This is what I, I want to get your thoughts on this. Divine providence doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter what the prophecy says. Divine providence is here's what happened. This this country won the war. This country lost. The country that won the war had divine providence on the other side. Doesn't matter what. Doesn't matter who thought what. The the end result is what divine providence means. It's very much um, aligned with predestination, but not really. It's just it. All it is is hindsight saying, okay, Caesar Caesar won the the he won the wars against Pompey, so he had divine providence on his side. It could have been either one. Divine providence right now, if you look at the world today, it seems to be progressivism is rising. Liberalism is rising. That word liberal actually is rooted in liber, which means freedom. Dionysus is the god of law, is is the father liber, the father of freedom. Persephone is libera. So those are the two underworld gods that could could conflate with the devil. They could conflate with the devil. But divine, if we if we apply this divine providence method to them, they're winning. Christianity's losing. Right. <laughs> is winning. Like, I, I'm I'm the, I'm trying to think like a like a ancient Greek pagan right now, and this is what they would be saying if this if they were around today. They'd be saying Father Lieber is on. Look at all these liberal countries now that are that are coming together. The UN. They'd be like Father Lieber is behind all this. And they would say, like, I'm, you know, you might disagree, but I wonder what your thoughts on that. So this is something I get really deep into, and I'm going to go off into my own mystical approaches upon this stuff. So take yeah, this. That's what, I want you, that's what I want. However you guys want to take this, right? Because this is my own personal gnosis, right? And I don't pretend it to be anything else, but I've been very deeply invested in this understanding of these cycles, Okay. And this is something that I've really thought about a lot on an esoteric level. And when you think about these cycles of violence and of the flipping of the poles, okay, these moments that happen across history, they always happen when you have this extremification. You have these times when things start to, powers that be start to calcify, okay? You know, they start to attack themselves. They become like Saturn. Okay, they become cold, unwilling to change, afraid of death, not willing to relinquish power to the next generation. And out of desperation, they attack themselves. Okay, what we're seeing right now within our world is we're seeing this polarization between, like you said, the liberal and the conservative value. You know, and we're seeing this hegemony where this conservative value, this capitalistic value, this this way of viewing the world is invested within the frameworks of our Western governments specifically. And even within some of the Eastern governments, you know, you're seeing this this really strong 
calcification that refuses, like Putin is a perfect example of this. This is a person who has his head in the sand. He refuses to acknowledge the, what's happening in reality. He, he wants to go back to Christianity. He wants right. to stay with his oil, right? He wants to blame the world. He wants to attack people for sexual differences as this, a way to, 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 to divide and, and, and unite people. This it's is disgusting. what I'm getting at. This is what I'm getting at right now. I'm trying to, and obviously this is all, we're, we're speaking in, we're not being literal. We're, we're speaking in a, in a sense that's, it's a different type of, we're, we're like um, allegorizing the way the world is right now. Obviously we're doing that. Like I, I, this is what I love about having you on, but um, it's Putin. If whether you're if you're if you're an Orthodox Christian, you love him. He's a hero. He's a saint. He's he's doing God's work. But if you're, I don't care what you are, even if you're not a pagan, you're looking at him and saying that's that's evil. He's invading a country, and he's forcing people to live a certain way and reject their own true identity and like put it pushing this cat uh, universal church, whatever this uh, Orthodox church is, back into the system. And he, in, in a sense, there's, there's this concept of the Diablos, right? And that's the, whatever the pagan, that's the devil. And it's basically all the traits of all the pagan gods rolled into one, which is my conclusion I came to. But like on the flip side of that, there is a character right here that we can look at because we have the opposite worldview. And there's, we can see, we see Putin for what he is. He's wild well, too, right? We see Putin for what he is, right? Yeah, exactly. Because we're progressives, but at the same time, within our own governments in Canada and the U.S., we're having a similar moment. We're having these reactionary conservative figures who are vilifying sexual minorities and, and invisible minorities of any kind, right? Who are wanting to regress society back to a type of Christian nationalism, a theocracy. You know, it's this little literal moment where they're trying to resist time. They want to stop progress and they want to go back in time. You know, in my understanding of, of paganism, that's the greatest sin. The absolute greatest thing is to worship death and refuse to transform. You, you know, imagine, you mentioned oil companies, right? And like these people don't care about what we would call or, you know, what uh, Gaia, Earth. Yeah, and they're so destroying. They're, they're destroying they Gaia. Are, so in, in that light, they're, they don't care about this planet. They, they think the planet is corrupted. They think that the there's going to be a, a coming of a Messiah who's going to come down and save everybody from this corrupt, evil world. But that's that's the exact opposite of what the ancients would say. They'd say, "No, you have to take care of the earth. The earth seems to be eternal." Earth you know, in my mind, right? In my mind, the ancients, right? They lived in harmony with the with the with the world that they were in. I want us to start to imagine the earth and us as a super organism, as we are united with Gaia, right? We're not separate from her. Her life is our life. Right now, we regard her as just material that we can abuse for our own sake. And it's this, this is this is cancerous. This is this is something that you know what's gonna happen is Gaia is gonna excise us. She's gonna transform her reality so that it no longer is sustainable for us. What do you think climate will be a forgotten dream and some new life form will replace us. What do you think climate change is doing? Exactly. Right. Whether you, it's not like we can get into the linguistics of like, how do you want to describe it? Do you want to be, you know, completely scientific about it and you know, okay. But like the ancients would just say, they would just straight up say that's Gaia telling us that things are wrong. It's not, it's, 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 yeah, they're different. They're not, they're not getting, they're getting at the same conclusion from different paths. 
Gaia. It's the earth. Climate yep. change, right? Yep. She's the most important figure. Like a lot of people, you know, they read these Greek myths and they don't see. Notice when we're looking at these cycles, who stays? Who's at the center? Who orchestrates every revolution? It's her. Gaia is the mother to Ur with Uranus. She's the mother with Kronos. She's the mother with Zeus. And she'll be the mother with whoever comes next. She's the constant. She's in control and pulling the strings. Don't kid yourself. <laughs> yeah, I agree. She protects Zeus, right? She convinces Kronos to swallow the Umphalos, right? right. And then she helps get, rally the gods to behind Zeus so Zeus could slay Kronos. None of that revolution would have happened without Rhea, or sorry, without Gaia. Gaia is the central figure. That's... But she doesn't even get mentioned. <laughs> and that's the thing. Um Aranos and Gaia, like you just said, they become, they come before set. They're, 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 those are the original, those are the original leaders. And that comes back to the question I was asking about Hesiod. Is he, is he talking about Aranos and Gaia? Is like back in the ancients, like there was a time when earth and sky were the main gods. This was like, like we're going back, like Bronze Age mentality earth, sky, sun, moon, right? We're like, it's all worshiping like nature, nature worship. Is that what Hesiod? Is that what that layer of Hesiod is doing? You know. Yeah. No, for sure. Right. This is these things. These people understand these primordial things, right? Like we have this misconception about the ancient past, right? They were far. We've lost. What has happened is we've lost a lot of the connection, right? The the ancients were just as smart as we are. But what they lacked in technology, they made up for in two things, in a connection to their natural environment and in an understanding of the image, of invoking these images, of, of visualizing things and understanding these, these metaphors in, the, in this language in a way that we have lost, you know? Yeah, I agree. Steve, thank you for the super chat. What are your thoughts on Wendy Doniger's work? Do you know anything about that? <laughs> this is something that's kind of a bit wild and, and, and a bit personal to me. So oh. um, I'm sure this person is well aware of who Wendy Doniger is. If, those of you who don't, she's one of the most important uh, religious studies scholars of uh, modern times. She comes from the Chicago school. Uh, she became very controversial a few years back because she wrote a book on Ganesha in which through using um, psychoanalysis, specifically Freudian psychoanalysis, she was talking about how Ganesh's um, nose was representative of a limp phallus and that this was supposed to be the embodiment of the sexual frustration of Shiva and all this stuff. But this particular work and this uh, way of uh, analyzing Indian myths was, was deeply offensive within India and became a, um, something that became trumped up by the, the far right there and was used as a way to attack a lot of religion studies and a lot of scholars. Now, my understanding is that like you you should be you can analyze anything. You can read any myth from any perspective. I think all meaning is valid. There's nothing wrong with trying to psychoanalyze this, but at the same time, right? Understand where this is coming from that this is a western approach. This is approaching it from this understanding of psychoanalysis. And I you know, I think the problems come when people start to conflate them. We have these divine sacred cows. We don't want people to say anything about what we think or what we believe, but people are going to say stuff about you no matter what, you know? But yeah, Wendy Doniger, I think she's she's a brilliant scholar in some ways, but 
she doesn't have enough of that Indian perspective. And she is approaching this from a very Western, very psychological approach. And if you like that, read her work. I don't think she's bad. I don't think she's doing anything wrong. And I definitely don't think that she's not a scholar who's worthy of her PhD. She deserves all of that, you know? Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, Patricio Romano says, to understand what Snappy is saying, you need a high advanced level of logic and abstraction skill. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> Most humans can't deal with that level of metaphysics, ergo, and they end up rever revering Kronos Amon. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. Well, I hope I am being clear, you know. No, I, I do understand no, that's this why, is very deep really philosophical like shit. Sorry. I really, I, I'm sorry, I cut you off, actually. But um, I always do that. Um, no, I just can't wait. I couldn't wait to say it because, like, I like your approach to the divine. It's very, ra um, very rational. It's very like you're looking at things for what they are. You're not trying to add dogmas anywhere. You're not trying to bend anything. You're not trying to make anything. You're not trying to make one plus one equal four. You're looking at the world and then you're applying this, um, this mythology or how do you say this divine ears to ear ears to hear mentality this orphic mentality you're this is what you're doing you're bringing back the orphic mentality so, yeah because what really inspired me was the was the myths okay was the was these texts themselves and engaging this from the perspective of an aesthete someone who's deeply trying to appreciate this right i'm trying to understand and invoke the image i got really invested in this idea because these stories is, is poetry Right, it's meant to create an image in your mind, a mental temple of which that has profound visions, smells, tastes, universes. You know, and when you really get into this, you can understand the beauty and the brilliance of these ancient peoples and their texts. You know, like they have so much to say if you're willing to listen. I agree. Yeah, they're they're brilliant. These people were brilliant. They were they were not stupid. They're the, these the Homer, Hesiod, Aeschylus. Plutarch, these people were brilliant people, very well educated. They knew what they were. They, they weren't just writing nonsense on the paper. It was like, no, this is smart stuff. Like, this is good stuff. Um, and I think there's a lot to look at, and it teaches a lot about how they thought. Uh, here's something I thought was interesting Caduceus, two Kundalini energies joining in union through sex and creating healing energy. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, this is. Sex is um, central to to the any of the pagan traditions, especially to Shaivism, right? And the joining of these, you know, the caduceus, you see it, right? You see that it's this whining of these two snakes. You see the phallus coming up and it's coming out of the fertile ground, right? Which is your vagina, your vulva, you know? So to me, this is very reminiscent of the lingam, right? Where you have your pedestal, that is your yoni. Then you have the phallus coming forth and you have... The snake wrapping around that's representative of that Shakti energy. You see that with Harpocrates, who's Horus? It's the, it's yeah, the, this is the god of silence, right? This is profound yeah. esoteric image, right? In yeah. order to hear the gods, you have to be able to perceive the silence, you know? And that's also representative of the child to come, right? Which Yeah, Eros. Exactly. So this, this, what happened with this god right here that you're looking at? You're looking at a... I don't know if this is 300 BCE, maybe 400 BCE, somewhere, somewhere at like toward right before the common era, right around there. Maybe it is the common. It might be the first century of the common era for something like that. Uh, I just gave a wide range of times, whatever. Anyways, forget, forget about that. He's, this is Harpocrates. He's Horus, but he's also combined with Eros. 
So he's this uh, God of love, but he's also the divine child, the son of Isis. And uh, you see he's bringing the fruits and stuff. He's, he's also the mystery is telling you to be silent. This is a mystery. So there's a this, lot going on here. This and reminds me of probably my favorite video on your channel, which is the video dedicated to Eros. Everyone should go watch that video. Because, that was my, one of my favorite videos I ever did. I, I love because, that. Video too. Right. You see this degradation of that throughout the Roman period. Eros transforms into Cupid, becomes something else. Right? It uses that, that you see on, on cards. Exactly. On, uh, it's not that's not Eros. Eros is. That's Heroes part of it, but that's one as one aspect of the image, right? What about the cosmogonic creative aspect, right? Eros yeah. is the force of union and separation, right? It cracks the right. cosmic egg, it rips bodies apart, it reassembles Dionysus. Like right, there it this is, is beyond right. important. And that's what I'm getting at because there's two traditions about about um Eros. One of them is that he's just kind of the son of Aphrodite, which is fine. That's that's there. But the the one with Hesiod that we get. Is that Eros was the one that split from Thanes, and you get Eros and Nyx. It's not day and night; it's love and night, or desire and night. Can be, I guess, desire might be a better desire and night as a duality. And yeah. I remember the first time reading this, reading this text, and being like, "You would think, you would think logically that coming off from Thanes would be night and day. There's your duality, night and day. But no, it's that's not what they do." They say it's night and uh, um, de desire or love. Yeah. Well, think about this, right? What causes Fani's to separate? It's desire for the other. In order to experience the other, he has to fashion the other out of himself. He has to die in order for the many to exist. He has to, you know, so it's this... He's the first sacrifice, that first force of sparagmos that gives birth to the entirety of all creation so that we can know each other. And that's what it is when you come together in that moment of sexual uh, bliss, in that orgasm, is that moment where you're reassembled back with the divinity. You and your partner become one, you know? It's, pretty, it's a beautiful... Uh, and by the way, what you're doing, like what you do in your... I don't know if you call it theology or... Just the way you are, the way you approach. This. I prefer I prefer spirituality because you know this is deeply personal, right? Sure. This is something that is meant for everyone to experience on their own. I don't say anything to anyone about Not what correct. they believe or what they should do. I just show you what works for me. You go out and try it. Tell me what you experienced. Now, the, this is what I want to say. You can correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, but the way I see it is that you're you the way you approach your spirituality is not any way. It's it's very much akin to how an artist or a musician would look at the world and then give, give um, a product of art from it. So yeah. a musician is interpreting the world around them and putting them, putting it into music in an abstract way, but it's like, or film. This is the best. I, sh I should have said film to begin with films. The best example, the, the greatest directors of all time, Kubrick, he takes things that are in the world that are real. But he abstracts, it gets abstracted and put onto a film. And this film did not, didn't really happen. 2008, 2001 spot, I said, that didn't happen. It's not real. But there's truth in there. So it's like a myth in a way. There's truth behind this story. It's the, the story's telling something about us, about humans, about society, about the world, about, you know, whatever. But like, it's an abstract telling of 
what he's how he's interpreting things. And you approach it seems like you that's how you approach your spirituality is it's personal, it's abstract, but it's also real. You're also yeah. being, you're like this this is real. You're not just like this No. This is this is real to me, right? And I mean, this is I I believe that belief has power, okay? Now, I could be somehow all proven to be wrong. And if I was proven to be wrong, I'd be the first to come back and admit it. But at the same time, you know, I believe it's important to trust in my experience and to trust in this reality. And what I like to do is I'm approaching this as an esthete. This is the way that I like to, I want to taste reality. I want to experience life and love erotically. I want to experience the divine in that erotic cosmogonic sense, okay? And part of that is I want to appreciate the myth as an observer and I want to create the myth as a, as a creator, right? It's this duality of both being the participant and the observer, you know? I, am, I want to be the sacrifice and be the sacrificer, be all parts of the ritual to experience the totality of the cycle. Yeah, I remember you said something in a we were in a chat one time. Us, you, you, me, and a couple other people were talking about all this stuff. And somebody brought up like the concept of eternal life. Like, is it true? Is, can, is there something? And you said so you said something that like I really was like, wow. And you said, what if there isn't? Then this this right now is eternal. Like, what do you like this, you're doing eternity right now? Uh, correct me if I said it wrong. I forgot exactly how you said it. You said something along those lines. Can you exactly? Every life is a moment, right? You can extend the moment. You can experience the moment infinitely, right? And that's part of the power and what they're trying to teach you to do in these mystery rites is to understand the illusion of time, right? And it's to recognize yourself, like within these understandings. Like I believe in this idea called the soul image. Okay, that each of us is 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 predominantly right, like. We, when we die, there is a literal physical death, okay? There is a destruction of the self, but at the same time, there is a freeing of the image of, of that part of you that is, that is engaged with, that is perceived, that is understood. Because there's this thing where like in all of our experience, anything that we witness, anything that we touch, right? I believe is a is a being, is a spirit unto itself. It has its own will, its own life force. Everything is alive. The universe is teeming with life. Re like matter itself, right? The, the actual matter itself produces consciousness. Consciousness is inherent within the matter. You know, like we are an expression of that consciousness. And we're just trying to have a conversation with ourselves. We're trying to heal and come together to return back to that monadic one. I mean, it gets really mystical and it's really hard to explain. Oh, and I, I know I'm doing a poor job. No, no, you're not actually. <laughs> what, what you're telling me is you're basically saying, why not make this life meaningful and make it special and magical? Like you have that option. Exactly. You don't have to Create just beauty for yourself, right? Like. The, the, yeah. They tell us that beauty is the most important thing to perceive and to withhold. So create beauty, bring beauty, perceive beauty, pursue it, right? That's to me, that is the essence of Aphrodite. That is the essence of the goddess. That is what I'm after, right? To draw her down into reality and to worship her like a friend and a lover. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah. So this idea that 
you sort of make this, like, we sort of use these rights as a way to not only like bring back these amazing fun stuff, but like it's, it's something that like brings purpose. Yes. And, and here's what I was, here's what I was getting. I remember what I was saying now for a lot of people, this is the thing that I think a lot more atheists should be aware of. You're, you're, I don't know if you you're live by yourself and have zero friends, and no family. Uh, that's, it's, it's more than likely that you're going to have to experience someone around you dying. Those is, and sometimes you have to do it with other people, you know, siblings or whatever, whoever it is. The, it's 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 probably better it's probably i don't know say better it's probably to your advantage to have some sort of idea of like like you know everything like this the i guess religion what religion is trying to do is trying to um bring you something is like some sort of way to cope with this stuff but not just that but like it's like it's just like the do you know what i'm getting at or not. Yeah, so I find okay. The fundamental difference I see with religion is religion is a lot about like it's about binding oneself. It's about restrictions. Okay, there is magic in this. There's transformative power in this, but it is about limiting yourself. You know, it is about fundamentally about sacrificing your 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 conception of reality to faith to faith. You know, and, and faith in my in my understanding is to is to embrace yeah. fear and to embrace that's, fear. That's not what I'm, that's to not die. What I'm, and I really want to separate that. From what I'm what I'm getting at. Okay. What I'm getting at is like not just not I'm not talking about faith. I'm talking about like having a worldview that sort of involves this this process in part of as part of as part of the rights. And then like learning that this is just part of the process. Those things. Yeah. Being, no, being that's, that's essential, right? Because like it's like what I'm getting at is like finding a way to have this awareness and then the acceptance as well. Because that, and the reason why I'm bringing this up, because in in the Judeo Christian religions, the way they, this is central to Judeo Christianity. It's that it's that eating the fruit of the tree of the tree of good of good uh, good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil is you are, you're now aware that you're going to die and you're cursed with that. But a way around that is to is to like not be afraid of it, not have faith that everything's going to work out, but like being aware of it but also being accepting of it there's nothing more powerful than that you've literally overcome death you're allowed to, you're allowed to say yeah i might die and there's nothing else after that i think on like I, you're, I, you're I left, hitting i left my legacy behind for immortality whatever happens happens maybe there is something maybe there isn't but i'm already accepted i've already accepted that this is it that is a powerful thing that's what I've been trying to, it's hard to, it's hard to get what I'm trying to say sometimes. No, I, I understand what you're getting at, right? Like there's this, you know what it is, is like within the mystery rites, especially there's this, there's this accept, it's about trying to experience the awe. It's about embracing that pan, entering into that panic, right? It's about understanding death. You die in the ritual. You are yeah. die, you die and you were reborn again. You are the snake and you shed your skin and you become someone new. You are born again, right? It's a transformative experience that's supposed to make you recognize, like in our life, we all have to adapt. We all have to be constantly changing because life in the natural world is scary and terrifying. And the reality is truth is largely denied us. The world is absurd, okay? We can only understand things 
to a point, and only then through consensus and through the extension of our technology, right? But yeah. even then, as we currently stand, none of us can know the truth literally, not exactly as it is. We can only try to engage with it. We have to deal with this absurd reality. We have to deal with the fact that we don't know everything, that life is confusing. Now, you can do a couple things when you're approached when this, with this fundamental scariness of the world in reality, in nature. You can, you can run and you can hide and you can stick your head in the dirt and you can wait for death to come and kill you. Or you can embrace that change and you can accept death and, and, and see it for the transformation that it is. See it in the natural world around you and understand it, that we are a part of a superorganism. That even when we die, the, 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 the life is not over. You know? That's, that's what the rights are trying to teach us. I, that, yeah, you couldn't have said it better. You couldn't have said it better. It's, um, there's, there's something way more powerful in, in um, there's something way more profound about that than just saying, well, I got faith in the good book that I'll be okay because I got because I believe like that is such a weak cop out. And compared to what you're saying is like it's so much more profound and more respectable and more powerful. Because you're tr you're literally triumphing over this thing that nobody can hide from. And it's like that's to me, I don't know. We went in a huge detour on the topic, but uh, I just I don't know. I thought I thought it was great. I loved it. It's, I'm so always so happy to chat with you. You know, we always have these interesting, deep philosophical things going. Yeah, <laughs> and that's why because we we do this all the time just for fun. I was like, we gotta just start doing it live. Why not? Right? People might, people might enjoy it, and plus we can engage with the chat. Um, I would. I, I, do you want to um before we end this out, I'll talk about the last video that you put out, and um I'll pull up your channel as well. Yeah, so Neil and I just collaborated on a video, right, where we read together. If you go to my video sections, it's actually oh, the second right. video I released today, so yeah. you'll see it there. Uh, we did a video where I'm reading a passage from this book, one of my favorite books, which is Shiva and the Primordial Tradition by Elaine Danilou, right? And Elaine Danilou is a mystic who is initiated into the Shaivite rites, and he talks about this primordial connection between the, the these erotic nature-based religion that was at the heart of our Bronze Age that inspired both Dionysus and Shiva. Yeah. So this, when I was putting this together, I, uh, I was, re I'm, I'm obviously listening to the lyrics or the, you know, the, the book, the, the, the writing. And there's the, there's the part in there where it talks about how, I think it comes up pretty soon on this, where it's everything that's pagan is the, is evil. Yeah, the idea of pan. There was a Christian uh, theologian from the fifth century, Aurorius, I think. Aurorius, yeah. Yeah, Aurorius, yeah. Yeah, a genocidal maniac, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what he says. He says, and the, and the, I wish I found this before I made my video about Satan, because here it is, right there. That's the part. Evil is whatever is pagan. And he's right. Yeah. As a Christian, he should think that. That's that's the correct way to think as a Christian. I like him for that, because if you actually look at what the devil is in Christianity, he's got the image of Pan. He's got the horns. He's the devil. He's he's Pan, but he's also the possessor. He possesses you. That's Bacchus. Bacchus is also all about revelry and, you know, going out and, and uh, you know, orgia, sacred orgia. That's all evil, too. You also have this idea of, uh, you know, he's 
Saturn because he eats his, like the whole all this all this stuff that the um Hades the underworld god that's evil somehow the underworld becomes hell and they they become equated so you have this image of Satan that progresses into this image of Lucifer later on and throughout the through the Latin and the English and it's this image of a fallen angel which if you actually put it together what they're doing is they're putting all the Apollo was a fallen god right he gets in trouble by zeus he gets sent down to the earth prometheus same story he rebels against zeus he gets tied to a rock and he you know these ideas become evil those become people who reject god they're people who are fallen angels prometheus teaches people how to make fires and and make metals those are the, that's enoch so enoch is basically taking paganism turning them into fallen angels and saying that's the devil and i love right. it because i because it's right it's correct. And then in, in, in primordial paganism and Shaivism, there is th this concept of evil doesn't even exist. You right. know, it's not even something that we there aren't. They don't care about your about what you think. They don't care oh. about who you're having sex with. You want to know they, why? They're, they're more interested in your actions. They tell you about right action. You exactly. know, but then there's no there's, what happens to you if you don't do the right actions is you suffer for your karma. You know, what goes right. around comes around. But that's yeah. not divine. That's physics. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Is like, um, what would I, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, what, wait, what did I just, what was I just saying again? Damn, I'm off today. But um, it becomes, oh, that's what I was going to say. It's not about, the reason why they don't care about like who you sleep with or what you did for on Friday or what fish you ate or you ate pork or not. It's not about that because the world is not that simple. Not everything is black and white. And, and th these traditions understood that, that p things are complex. People are p people as humans have we're we have our flaws. We have our plus. We have our pluses. We have our strengths. Everyone's different in their own right. Everybody's unique. Everyone has that sacred spark in them right and it's not about like oh did he wear the right clothes today did he pray five times a day or did he eat the right t type of meal that's all that's all bullshit that's all like low shit man that's like lowering yourself down to this is why one of the one of the gnostic gospels that i really like is the gospel of mary and this particular jesus he's like don't make laws like the lawless ones do like you don't have the and like that where is that? That that seems to be more aligned with this kind of thinking. That makes sense. No, definitely right. Like what we're trying to get at with this with these religions is right. It's that they're far more about like it's not about prescription. It's not about control, right? Like it's not religion. It's spirituality. They're they're fundamentally interested in different things. One is about experiencing the divinity, about transforming yourself, living in harmony with the natural world, and venerating the ancestors, connecting to divine images. And you notice all these things. These are the things that the Christians destroyed. They went after. What did they do? They controlled all the 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 rites of burial. Right? They destroyed all the pagan burial sites. Right? Ancestral veneration was the central part of their worship. They destroyed it. Then the image, the image is sacred. You're supposed to imagine the gods. You're supposed to invoke the images that the myths create. You're supposed to perceive the deity in the idol and they destroy them all, reduce them. You know, it's like you said, anything that is evil is pagan. You and are, it's so clear. You, you know, sex, all of that stuff, drugs, the stuff that they that the pagans loved becomes 
the boogeyman. Right. And you know, I don't know what, what you just said was so profound because the, I, the, there's the first three 10 commandments, right. Are about images and idols. It's just like and I'm honoring other gods, right? Yeah, I'm a jealous. God. says that there can't be just one God. That doesn't make sense think, for a reality. Think about this. This is <laughs> so mind blowing. What I'm about to say to you, and I know you're gonna love this. The representation in film, like representation, when you haven't, there's different images to choose from in paganism for reasons. You have Aphrodite, you have Bacchus, you have Pan, Prometheus. You have all these different gods with different traits, and you can choose who you want to be devoted to. You are connecting yourself with this particular being that you are devoted to. You have representation in these myths, wherein the monotheistic tradition, there's only one representation. There's, only, there's no idol, no image. There's one representation, and you have to follow that and become that somehow. It's become this sort of whatever pious they would call it. It's become that being. You have to follow in line with this way and reject who your true self is. Whereas in representation and this, and this relates to today because in, in like film and music and movies, when you represent characters of, of all different sorts of people, they can have something to look up to. And like Superman's like a uh, character people look up to Batman's a character. Look, people look up to black Panther, all these different characters that somebody can relate to. And it gives them something to like, be proud of or live towards Does that make sense no definitely right like we're the idea with all of this like it's very clear to me when we're looking at a lot of these when you, you're looking at the abrahamic religions and you're looking at a lot of the more monotheistic religions or religions that become very politicized these politicized ideological movements this includes elements of the hindu tradition of the buddhist tradition of pretty much any religious tradition they start to become these patriarchal forces. They become these dictatorial fascistic organizations, right? They want to control your thought. They want to control your action, right? That's very different than spirituality. Spirituality is telling you to have a conversation with the divine. It's about experiencing personal gnosis, something that's for you, about your life, about your experiences. It's not about interpreting this for you. It's not about dictating it for you. That's yours and yours alone. The Christians say that your, your personal experience must be mitigated and understood through our lens. You know, you, your, your, your truth, not real, <laughs> you know, or your, what you're thinking doesn't matter. You know, your experience invalid. <laughs> that was well said. Now, if you like this hour and 40 minutes almost chat, you know where to go. The link's in the description. Subscribe. This is one of the best channels out there for digging deep into these sources. You do a lot of um, audio books now too, right? Yeah. So one of the things I really wanted to do is uh, within, the, within my understanding of paganism, right, we're trying to invoke these images. And the people who are still connected to these images and to this way of thinking most are the poets and are the philosophers. So I wanted to bring the poetry and the philosophy that I found deeply meaningful to my channel. So I took specific ins like little essays and poems and stuff that, that were transformative and profound for me. And I wanted to share them with the community, which is where we got that tantric initiation video we did together. Yeah, that was a fun one. That really was. But mostly right now on my channel, I'm, if you go to the live, I run a show with uh, my good friend Dion of the Occult Barbershop. Oh, yeah, those are amazing, by the way. Yeah. Those and right now, lives. you and Dion are on fire. And it's just so like what we're doing right now. 
exactly. It's it's two people who are very well versed and have a lot of, know a lot of these sources, just just chatting about it. If exactly. Like, we're we're people who are really invested in understanding and and in in, in exploring mythology okay. and tradition from a, basically from like an anthropological perspective and from an exploratory perspective. So what we want to do is we want to look at all of these various religious traditions and the beliefs that people are that they really believe in and really practice. So we're not so much looking at it from an academic. We're not trying to explore the truth. We're exploring beliefs. We're exploring practices and ideas, and it's really fun. And we get into some weird out there stuff. Like uh, on Sunday, tomorrow at 4 p.m., we're having as a special guest, a really amazing uh, friend of ours, Gunk Wretch, who's a magician yeah. and an occultist. Gunk's and we're gonna awesome. be talking about uh, magic carpets and infusions. I'm definitely gonna be watching that. That's a 100% fact. Um, and we just have to have a, give an ode to Dr. Amon because he's teaching us Greek and Latin. And we're not, we're not, we're not, yeah. not I'm not just saying this like, we really are learning this stuff. Like we're, we're, this is a, we're bringing back Alexandria, baby. We're, we are, yeah. this is a, you know, Emmett is a big, a big inspiration for all of this, right? This he's, he's a, also yeah. someone who's, who's searching and bringing back this primordial pagan tradition. You know, he's invested in that, in the, in the, in the goddess and in, in, yeah. Wonderful person. Go support his channel, Lady Babylon. It'll blow your mind. Yeah. And that's where, and that's cause we have somebody like him who's willing for free just to give out, you know, like, Hey, real quick. I found this word in the Greek. What does it mean? What's the etym? Boom. He just, he's a classicist. He's a philologist. He knows, you know, and, and then he, and then he, if he doesn't right off the bat, he'll look it up. He has a better understanding of what the, we call it Alice, but like uh, Perseus Tufts, like he knows exactly what the sources are. He knows what's in there. He's, he's adept to actually go through this stuff. You know what I mean? So it, it also just seems every time I throw something at him, the man has read it. Like he's the guy is so well read. It's he's, so he's on it. He's on it. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. It's like having him as a resource is huge. It really is. Yeah. I don't even know if I'd be as this far in as as deep as I am in this comparative religion world if it wasn't for him and you, actually. So oh thank you. It's the same, right? I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys. You know, we kind of all been inspiring each other, right? Like we've been having yeah. so much profound, like not even a, a year ago, I, my channel was all devoted to, to music. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome so. though. So anyways, uh, that is all. Go and subscribe to Drawing Down the Stars and you have just attained true gnosis. Hail. You have just attained true gnosis. Oh.